Hello one, hello all. Welcome to 100 Words or Less, the podcast where we talk about independent music, cover people who are creating it, putting it out, documenting it in some capacity. And today's guest is uh, definitely one of those people. His name is Casey Crescenzo. He plays in a band called The Deer Hunter. He also played in a band called The Receiving End of Sirens, or many people refer to them as Trios. And he has had a very prolific career within independent music. And uh, I want to have him on the show, so uh, that's what we did. And uh, I'm excited to bring that to you in a few moments. Um, first of all, you can always email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I love to uh, correspond with people you know, guest ideas or, you know, feedback like, Hey, why don't you have this person on? And then, you know, I can tell you why. Um, so yeah, don't hesitate to reach out and also spread the word of this show. Cause that's the best way that you can, um, you know, support this whole thing by uh, telling your friends, telling people who need to hear about this show, because, uh, you know, I, I do this for fun and it's very enjoyable, but, uh, you know, the more people that listen to this thing, uh, the cooler it is and the better it is from that perspective. So, I would appreciate any, uh, you know, positive reviews that you give to uh, the show at large. So Casey was a great discussion. Uh, We talked a lot about his uh, origin story because, um, you know, he just seemed like, uh, you know, very proficient in regards to the way that he played his musical instruments in an age where that maybe wasn't the, uh, the focal point of many of us that were creating music at that time. So yeah, it was just a great chat. So uh, yeah, here's Casey, and I will talk to you, of course, after the episode is over. Well, we're packing in the pitch and niche like it's a lotto. Now take a seat so the show can start. And will you welcome these works of art? Isn't she beautiful? We are uh, mutual friends, Mr. Brian Southall. Um, I've, oh, yeah. I've, yes, I've known him for 150 years when he played in, oh, uh, for dire life's nice. sake. Yes. Nice. Um, That's a, that is some time. Yes. He was, uh, I worked at century media records and he was actually trying to get for dire life's sake signed to century media. But anyways, it was one of those things I just was really struck by, you know, him and his uh, musical ability. And then, you know, he told me about, uh, you know, trios when that was all, you know, coming together and everything like that. And right it was one of those things where it's like that, that time, the early two thousands was so interesting for independent music because, um, you know, there people were actually starting to get good at their instruments. And I know that sounds so basic, but like, you know, like they're prior to that, you know, whatever punk and hardcore indie rock, whatever you want to call it. Like, you know, like, yes, there were technicality aspects to it, you know, whatever, if you're looking at hardcore, it's like, you know, converge Dillinger, that sort of stuff. But like, it was almost like there was this. There's this period of time in popular music, not to cut you off, please, but just to please. like put a little, uh, put a little a- asterisk where like the the exhibition of hair metal kind of you know was answered by grunge and that idea of like it doesn't really matter how fast you can play your instrument to to express yourself. I think that that was such a um, like the 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 evolution of music and music musicality in a pop sense is so short so far that everything up to that point was kind of like new you know like there wasn't really a hair metal point before that so everything was new but then there was this big answer to this musicianship this exhibitionist musicianship on a pop platform that got i think smashed by grunge and then it's like been sort of for what felt like probably a decade or so like this weird in between of actually being proficient at your instrument. And you know what I mean? Like it's somewhere between 
like Wes Borland and the guitar players from Korn. Right. Like the, there was this like ping ponging in, I mean, I'm, I'm only really pointing out that, but then you also had people like Mike Einzinger, but I just think you have this period of time where proficiency in your instrument wasn't really sought after by the listener. Yeah. And then that early two thousands felt like there was a lot more technicality being infused into that more what I guess would be called emo or just emotionally driven, mm -hmm. angsty, less less proficient and more textural kind of musicianship and songwriting, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I think it was like, because the notion of, you know, being like good at your instrument in relation to, you know, punk or hardcore, indie rock, whatever you want to call it, independent music, it, it, there, you know, it wasn't like cool. Like as long as you're able to put stuff together and, you know, have the aggression and have that sort of like visceralness of the live experience, that was the driving force behind it. But then once people started to show that like, oh no, like I can be good at the instrument that I play and still exist in this scene and not be just like, oh yeah, this is like, you know, total masturbatory guitar stuff or whatever, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the weird things for me was that when I, I got really proficient at my instrument when I was younger and I kind of stepped fully away from that, but I, I didn't really know about music like my, that first, my first real band, the receiving and the sirens. I didn't really know about that kind of music, like, you know, heavier, more technical without being metal kind of music. And it was, ju it's just kind of funny that the thing that actually got me into that band was this little little EP of music that I showed them that really didn't show like any technical proficiency at all. It was all like electronic, ambient, soft kind of music. And then I think the thing that did really get me in the band was shredding one day at Daddy's Junkie Music in Boston in front of the bass player. Just like yeah, ch childish masturbatory harmony on top of some really technical part he was playing, or at least at the time it seemed technical. And at this point, I don't remember what it was, but just, it's interesting. It's, it, I, I guess I'm just saying it's interesting how, how the proficiency and like technical ability, when you pass the point of just being able to play a song and you're in that point where you're like, you're, you're choosing between a part or exhibiting your ability, you know, when you're writing, it's like, do I, do something flashy here or something technical or, or something like that. It's just interesting how much that wavered in my life, in the music that I was listening to and the people that I came in contact with. It was like bouncing between groups of people that did not like, it's like there was a, there was a notes per minute kind of limit that you could really <laughs> listen to. Sure. Sure. And, and that was more in, in the bands like bright eyes and stuff like that, that, not like it was dumbed down or anything, but it was like songwriting, songwriting versus exhibition, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. Oh, totally. And then, I mean, it's like looking at that time frame as well, where it, you have a band like, you know, minus the bear where it's like, you know, clearly the lineage of, you know, tapping guitars from like, you know, mm -hmm. botch and, you know, you, the through line is there, but it's so funny because then it's like, you know, you look at a band like Thrice who, you know, were doing that obviously in the early 2000s as well. And, you know, make they make no bones about the fact they're like, oh, yeah, we were just ripping off botch and soil work or whatever. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you you yeah. always hear about that, though, with those with those sort of like pillar bands there. There's always like Caven is a band that is so instrumental to so, so much about 
heavier music since they came out. Everything from like drum to like the production side of it, obviously, like they hugely influential. But you're the amount of people that know a band like Caven versus a band like Thrice. You know, it's, totally. there's there's always those bands, and I think obviously I th I think Thrice is deserving of it. I just Absolutely. think it's interesting. There's always those pillar bands that you find out about, and you're like, oh, this is the band, and you can see, and you could probably trace. You can obviously trace it back of who Caven, who that band was for Caven. Mm -hmm. But Caven is this band that seems like this branching point, um, when it's like it it kind of provided a they provided a really cool roadmap for heavy bands to do things other than just be heavy. Yep. You know, totally. while still being being like ferociously ballsy when they needed to be. Right. Um, right. But yeah. So, yeah. And say, I mean, just like the idea of like standing on the shoulders of giants, like clearly, you know, that's all that happens with the, you know, building of, you know, your own musical projects and everything else. But then it isn't until to your point where something kind of breaks through on a, you know, a, a little bit larger level that 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 idea becomes original to the person who is consuming that art and is like, you know, if they've never, if you've never heard a tapping guitar and then you start to, you know, hear, you know, trios and thrice or whatever. And then you're just like, Oh, so these guys invented it. And then like, that's, you know, <laughs> Oh, for sure. And then what's even funnier is when, whenever there's a situation like that, and then somebody maybe goes back and listens to like Eddie Van Halen or something like that, you know, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, someone yeah. who, who might have some legitimate, uh, claim to to being instrumental in tapping and they might think oh that just sounds cheesy right. or like oh that's just that's just not for me but then you know these bands it's kind of the way i feel about this there was this weird transition where like i've always listened to from i mean not as the main music i listen to but within the music i listen to i've always listened to stuff like i guess shreddier guitar players like steve Vai and joe satriani and i really liked steve Vai for a long time still do for for composition and just like this baton passing of, of frank zappa um oh man i completely lost where i was going with this but it was so purposeful oh yeah, yeah. that's right okay so for so long it was just like shreddy guitar was so it, like there was even within the kind of heavier like the the music that i was playing or bands like thrice like there's still a notes per minute limit there's still like the kind of technicality that people like to hear in that music, you know, like there's a difference between sort of more technical riffs or music like dragon force. Like, I don't know what that would be now, but sure. There was this weird transition that happened. And I remember it was a few years back when we brought out the band Chon to, um, to, to, to tour with us. And now, I mean, we would probably be lucky if we got a tour with them. I think they, <laughs> yeah. I think they, the roles exploded. have reversed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Which is a running theme in my life that I have totally gotten used to. Like after the third or fourth band that I watched open for a band I was in and then just crush on like the, the international stage, I was like, this, uh, just get used to it. Like this is a lesson you're going to have to learn. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is, this is fine. I, I know that the music is cyclical, so I get it. Yeah. You... Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, um, it was just so interesting to me that like the, the, I mean, I was so used to exhibitionist music kind of, kind of falls always into the prog category. Like it, whatever it is, it, if it's not jazz and it has a lot of technical proficiency, it, you know, displayed, it usually leans into prog. Like it, 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 
if it's prog metal or or like there's some way there's some prog influence in that and Sean was one of the first bands that I saw and I know there's a few bands like this and there have been some bands before that kind of do that similar like if a computer could emote music that's what it seems like to me like if a computer discovered emotions and then immediately tried to write a piece of music it's like that's that's what that kind of music feels like to me but it was so interesting that, that this extremely proficient shreddy exhibitionist music was so welcomed by such young energetic seemingly not the kind of people that would listen to shreddy exhibitionist music like it was the first time i saw that occur in almost like an edm kind of reception if that makes sense sure like dueling shredding guitars but the vibe of it was like it was a a party i was so not not used to that yeah so there there's this whole in the last 10 years you know building new wave of just the fastest guitar playing possible like shit that doesn't register with me yeah uh, and not not in an emotional way like in a technical way i can't figure it out like right, <laughs> watching right. watching their hands and stuff like that like i think we when we were touring with them i tried to learn one or two riffs from them it was the kind of thing like 20 notes into it when we were only like a second or two into the riff i i kind of <laughs> i'm at capacity I to, like, yeah <laughs> i just had to put yeah i had to put the guitar down <laughs> just like no this is not for you you you're not you're not capable. Just watch in awe. Our good friends in Rockabilia want to outfit you for the summer. Use this code PC100Words. That gets you 15% off your order. And they have so much rad stuff on sale right now that you need to visit. They have face masks for all of you who are practicing the social distancing, which frankly should be everybody. And you know, when you're grocery shopping, what better way to walk around the grocery store than, uh, you know, a, cu- a cool municipal waste, uh, you know, uh, face mask. Why don't you do that? Okay. But no joke, Rockabilia is the real deal. All officially licensed stuff. They pay the bands out. None of this horrific bootleg stuff that you find online. And they're an independently run business that ships out of the Midwest. It gets to you really, really quick. And I just love this company so much. I can't tell you how many times I've ordered from them and uh, just frankly, how great of a company they run. So if you are looking for band merch, you need to look no further. Go to rockabilia.com and again, use the code PC100Words. That gets you 15% off your order. And thank you, Rockabilia. Yeah, no, for sure. No, it, it is interesting. I've noticed that as well where it, it's the, um, and I think it, it it has to do too with the fact that, you know, most, the, the general concept of, of music, especially as you're starting to, you know, explore your own taste and starting to get into your own stuff, once you kind of go down the rabbit hole of uh, everything that, you know, we were just talking about as far as like the notion that the, you know, y- y- your brain as a 14, 15, 16 year old is, you know, kind of processing stuff, obviously in very fast time, but, you know, is usually attracted to kind of the more, uh, for lack of a better term, like simple visceral music, you know, like, yes, of course you can get, you know, attracted to stuff that's like way over the top and way crazy, but yeah, I, I find it so interesting in the same way of what you're talking about, but I could tell we could talk about that for another uh, 150 minutes, but that would, that would be, that, 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 that we could just start our own separate podcast about that, <laughs> but, but, uh, kind of focusing on you as a person, um, you know, I, I, I'm going to presume that you were kind of born and raised in the, uh, sort of East coast Boston area, or am I completely off base? You're understandably completely off base. Thank that you. I, I appreciate that. I, <laughs> I, yeah, well, totally. I mean, I, 
the only <laughs> trying to think of how to say this. I well, I grew up really in the suburbs of Southern California. I'm, I spent like eight to eighteen there, and then where, at eighteen, where specifically in the SoCal? Because I mean, in, I live in I live oh, in, in Oak Beach. Park. Oh, yes. in Oak Park, dude. Yeah. I uh, very, yeah, very familiar like with the that. suburbs. Yeah, um, well, that's uh, just outside of Ventura, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, put, there uh, there was definitely a ton of shows in the Ventura area, and I played a lot of shows like in that general area, like Kung Fu Corner and a bunch of other places. But uh, yeah, that was like in Thousand Oaks. But yeah, that that area is great. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. There was one really popular, very tiny club to play in Southern California that wasn't in LA. Maybe it was in like Northridge. I don't remember where it was, but it was just like one of those. There it is. There you go. You're welcome. Thought about that in so long. (laughs) Yeah, dude. Oh my god. That was like it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that was like a just you know kind of. It, it, not in the valley per se, but it's like, you know, up the, the, whatever, the 101, 405. And yeah, the, gosh, I can't even remember the, the city that was located in, but yeah, I don't yeah. talk about. So strange, but, um, yeah. So I grew, I grew up in, it was like my parents moved around, I think almost every year until I was eight. And for a good number of them before I was eight, they moved around within Los Angeles. So we were living in like, I think Culver city and, uh, my dad worked in Marina del Rey and then, um, maybe 1990, 91, they moved to the suburbs and that was, I don't know. I mean, like I, it was an awesome childhood. Uh, it was super musical. There was just my, my dad had a studio in the house forever. Like that's all I've ever known is there being a section of your house devoted to being a studio. Um, and they would make music together, my mom and my dad. And that was kind of like between the music they would listen to, like Weather Report, The Police, The Beatles, um, a lot of different music. Between that and the music they made, it was just like, I don't know, I, I had one of the easy, I can't imagine how my childhood could have been easier, given the fact that I was so interested in doing creative things and so had such a strong aversion to higher schooling like to to be in this family feels like i don't know how i could have been any other way and i can't imagine having it any easier than i did growing growing to 18 sure and then it was just very strange right um <laughs> what, yeah <laughs> what uh what processed all of the i guess the the movement from your parents like were they uh you know just like like what were they doing for a living and like what did the i guess the makeup of the house look like you have brothers and sisters and stuff yeah i i have one brother and one sister and my brother is the drummer of my band and um my sister is an artist and has done she's um more of like a film artist, but has also sang on some of our records and, and come out to a few shows and sang as well. Um, but uh, yeah, so when I was leaving home, it was right around the time, I think my brother had been gone for either a year, year and a half. My sister was just getting into high school. And it was the kind of thing where I was, oh, oh, that's right. I was playing in this band um this 
Well, I'll save my own judgment for the band, but I was playing in a band that was basically a new metal band called Delusion. I, I was that... I was literally to interrupt your train of thought. I was literally because like I, I saw that you know I did my fair amount of research on you beforehand because you know uh, being um, being located in the area where you were located in, it was always that weird thing where sometimes people got thrown into bands and like once I read about Delusion, I was like, oh dude, like Casey got thrown thrown in at the deep end with this thing. <laughs> Well, it's really interesting. Like, it's such it's such an impactful moment of time in my life. The process of like I was playing in my own band with my brother, and we had this really, really. I mean, he was talented, but he was just an amazing person. Like, guy we really hunt, loved hanging out with and playing in a band with. And it was at um, just band practice one day, and he told me there was this band in a few towns over that was auditioning guitar players and um, also, you know, guitar players who could play keys. And I was like, well, do you want to go like audition as a duo? Because I'm not really a good piano player. You're a great piano player and I'm a good guitar player, but I'm not going to be a double threat. Like maybe if we go and we, we audition together, it'll be cool. And we auditioned and he didn't get it because they already had a keyboard player and we didn't know. And uh, I really got along well with the singer and the guys in the band. And it was the kind of thing where I was just excited about the concept of playing music more professionally. Um, and that's just like with a band of people who, whose lives revolved around that band. Um, because the band I was playing, it wasn't like our full time thing. It wasn't like we were putting all of our effort into making this band a successful thing. It was just, we had a band. Um, and I had like enough music that I was interested in that had crosstalk with the music that they were interested in. Like I loved Incubus and the Deftones. And I loved that sort of, I guess I loved a few bands like that, but I didn't really branch out in too many directions. Cause I felt like they, there was like a few bands that were the cream of the crop for me of what the new metal music had to offer. And that's what, where those bands kind of, I can still enjoy them thoroughly. Like I would still put on white pony right now and, and really enjoy it or um, make yourself or science from incubus. But so there was enough there. And in talking with them, there was enough of like, they also really liked funk and they wanted to, it was more like they were influenced from that era of Incubus and stuff like that. And I really got along with, well with the guys and I'm making all of these apologies right now for why I would have played in this band. Sure. But, but really it's just, it, it, I don't know if it mattered to me what kind of music they were playing because I always tried to make whatever I was doing and whatever band I was in a really good extension of me so that at least my instrument and the thing that I was contributing felt like something I could own and something that I was like proud in, in a sense to play, you know, like some, not some guitar part or thing that I just had a deep hatred of. I, I would usually be very thoughtful in the way that I would put my parts together. And, but that, but at the same time, it just wasn't really music that I liked. And it, like it wasn't music that I would put on and listen to. And it wasn't music that was being designed out of this. Like, what is the music I want to hear kind of mentality. Um, 
And then I found out that they, their A&R guy, well, they had two A&R guys. One of them was, I think his name's Kaz Yutsumira, who I, they told me was responsible for signing Tool. I don't know if that's his name or if that's what that person did, but those are my memories. And then the other A&R person was Jack Osborne from the Osbournes. Sure. And he, dude, he, he was on the prowl for like, uh, you know, a good five to six years. It's like he would just, you know, show up at random shows and then everyone would be humming. Everyone would be like, oh my gosh, there's Jack Osborne. He's trying oh, to sign a band. It's like, oh geez. I remember. And the best part about it was like, as soon as I spent time with him, all of that hope vanished. All of <laughs> like, it. all of the, okay, there's, there's like, it's just ch- <laughs> looking back on it now. It's just like children, a bunch of children pretending. It was, it was a. He was like what, fifteen, and he was an A and R guy at Sony. Totally. And I think I was like seventeen, and the singer I think was eighteen, like so young. And but what's funny about it, looking back, I was so bold and stubborn that I was like, okay, I'll produce this EP we're doing for the label. Um. That I don't. I had never really produced anything before, and we barely had spent much time in the studio as a band. Um, but uh, that was what we decided to do. And in that process, Jack brought over the film crew from the Osbournes, and they filmed part of an episode at my house. Amazing. And it gets even better. Jack Osborne called me. I think I might be paraphrasing. At the very least, I know he called me a nuisance. I I think he might have called me an asshole. Um, And I I was watching the episode. I think I've told this story maybe a few times, so I don't know if if I've ever told it on a podcast before. I've, I've only done a few. But I was watching the episode. Like, our singer called me and said, hey, that episode that they filmed at your house is airing tonight. And it was like, awesome let's watch it together on the phone and he's on the phone i'm on the phone we're just watching gets to this part where it's jack and our singer having a phone call and all they're doing is talking about how big of a problem i am because i won't like they manufactured this weird drama that i wouldn't turn over the masters for this ep when it was just like they they were asking what the status was of it and if they could hear final mixes. And I was like, we're not even done recording it, let alone mixing it or anything like that. And they turned that into this bit of drama for the week. And uh, it was such a surreal thing being on the phone with the singer when he did not, <laughs> for whatever reason, he didn't think that that was going to make its way onto the show. Like of all the things that had happened in that week, I would think he, he would be able to intuit that a like, sort of dramatic conversation with the singer of this band is probably yeah that's, re- that's top of the- right that's reality show fodder that's exactly what yeah, exactly do. exactly yeah. and maybe this was early i mean it is pretty early looking back on it in terms of modern uh reality tv but yeah so so uh that was awkward i called up jack osborne and he made all of these funny little sounds about how uh, sorry he was. And then I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, and that was your first we, band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, and that was my first band and we played the, the, but the reason I actually ended up leaving the band and it, it, I'm happy that I did this obviously, but he, uh, we, we played a foam party at some college oh my and 
I it was you, like you, you saying phone party I just brought me back like a good 15 years where it's like oh my gosh I remember that being a thing <laughs> yeah it's uh, it's, it, <laughs> it's ah. so we were playing a phone party and the uh um you know uh, needless to say all of the equipment that I had was covered in in soap bubbles and shit and after we made no money that weekend then the at the uh when we were on a phone call, me and the singer, I was like, you know, I don't really want to do, oh no, he called me saying we have another, like a frat party to do this weekend. And I was like, that's not really for me. That's, that's uh, like, I'm not interested in playing college parties or anything like that. Like, I just don't see how this is a thing that will result in us sort of achieving anything we want to achieve or in the way that we want to achieve it. And <laughs> I love, I just love saying this. He said to me, he was very upset with me. And he said, maybe you just, maybe music just isn't for you. And I just said, yeah, I guess maybe, maybe music isn't for me. I sold all of my guitars at the time, all of my amps, which for some reason I had more than I do now, like a lot as a like 17, 18 year old kid, um, sold them all and started doing like, uh, video editing and figured, okay, I guess music's not for me. And I, uh, and that was that, that was my first band. And that, yeah, that, that was the rap. And then, you know, uh, you didn't do anything afterwards. So it's a good thing. you listened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, the best part, the best part is that he reached out to me years later and I have no qualms with, with this person. Like I loved the time that I spent with him. He's hilarious. He's kind. He's super, super talented, but he, he, uh, his dad was on VJ and the bear, by the way. Um, I don't know if you, if you know what that is. Yeah, for uh, sure. For sure. Yeah. 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 Greg Evigan was his dad. Um, oh, wow. Also on my, also on my two dads. Uh, but um, <laughs> I don't know why I'm, why I'm bringing any of that up, but he, he sent me an email like years back and he just said he was on warp tour and he was sitting in a circle of some people talking about my band and that he was really proud of what I had done with it and that he loved the music and um, just really sweet things that you don't expect to hear or, or receive after, you know, after being told music isn't for you. It, it, I would completely understand somebody like that's a very big move to come back and say something that kind and, and uh, relay a moment that sweet. So yeah, I, uh, no, it's uh, yeah. You would know yeah. you you would hold no uh, yeah ill will towards a person like that. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so that you know, obviously, since your experience with with that and kind of like you know starting to like you said. Uh, the idea that you know whatever schooling after a certain uh, amount of time was was something that you were not going to be interested in whatsoever um i guess the path kind of forward for you was always just kind of like oh yeah i'm just going to pursue this this music thing whatever that may mean and you know i'll be uh you know i'll be fine it, you know it, this isn't going <laughs> i would i say you know, i'll be I'll, yeah. when i say i'll be fine it's like well yeah that that's a, a you know a sliding scale there but uh it, it seemed like yeah. that has always been kind of your your north star as it were well, yeah, I think that the reason I always thought I would be fine is because I've really never had, this makes it sound like I'm ungrateful for where, you know, the, the successes that I have enjoyed, but I've never had the goal of, like, I was always very afraid to play in front of people when I was young and I would always force myself to do it so I could kind of get over that fear. And as, as rewarding as live music is, 
um, the really rewarding thing for me is being creative. So, so when I left home and I wasn't really in a position to devote all of my time to music because I was, you know, spending all of it just trying to make rent. That was, I didn't really think like I was a cashier at urban outfitters. I didn't really, but I never thought that I was failing at my goal. If that makes sense. I just wanted music to be in my life in some way. And I wanted to be serious about it when I spent time on it. Like I take, I take it seriously, even when it's funny to me. Um, right. But I, so that's that's just the goal. And and because of that, you know, not achieving some massive celebrity status is not going to rock the boat. Just like, you know, when we had the pleasure of getting a song on the pleasure, this pleasure of getting a song on on radio once or twice. I would like that doesn't rock the boat too much either. Like I try to not let those things influence whether or not I feel like I'm living, you know, a fulfilling life. I am very excited to tell you about a new record from Cro-Mags released this June 19th on Mission 2 Entertainment. And I mean, if you don't know who the Cro-Mags are, I I really think you need to uh, get out a little bit more because, uh, you know, they are hardcore legends. It's their first album in 20 years. It's called In the Beginning, and uh, it's a really, really good record. We're going to listen to a little bit of one of their tracks. It's called From the Grave. It actually features Phil Campbell from Motorhead on it, which is unbelievable. So let's listen to a little bit of that. So how about that? I, I really can't believe we're talking about a new Chromax record now in 2020. It's unbelievable. So you can find that record called In the Beginning on any of your favorite streaming providers, or you can go to mission2entertainment.com and find some uh, some cool packages in regards to merch and vinyl and all that other fun stuff. So yes, go check out the new Chromax record called In the Beginning Everywhere Out Now. Sure. Well, it, the, the notion of just like, you know, building your life around something um, that is important to you and regardless of the, you know, kind of ups or downs in it, it's just being like, well, that's, that's part of this, you know? And like, yeah, you, right. you, tr- you try not to vacillate too high or low. Um, you know, you kind of want to try to keep it in the middle, but like, yeah, building your life around that. And like you said, giving yourself the space and the ability to be able to uh, creatively pursue the thing as opposed to, you know, okay, I must do this next. So I need to shut off this portion of my life because I don't have time for it anymore or whatever, all the trappings of, you know, a quote unquote normal life. So I completely understand where you're coming from. Yeah. I think, I think it did, you know, over time get there though. Like it, it, it transitioned to this thing where, okay, I need to shut out every portion uh, other portion of my life. And, and that's something I would say over the last like five years and certainly since becoming a father, I've had to really alter about my approach is I can't do these, you know, six month lock yourself in a room and work on something bouts anymore because there's too many other things that I care about, you know, um, for sure. It's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting change. I guess that just happens as you get older, you know? 
Yeah, for sure. There, there are more demands on your time because, you know, these other things that have equally as much meaning as you following the creative process to be like, oh, yeah, like that's selfish. <laughs> if I just bail yeah. for six months on my family, like that's not that's not it's reasonable. Tr- <laughs> it's true. And it, I will ad- admit or concur that it it is hard not to feel like the time that I take to be creative at this point is selfish. Like there's a there's sort of like a. a I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but there's like a, there's like a fuse, basically a burning fuse of like, I can kind of keep myself from feeling guilty about working. If I, if I keep myself active enough, it's weird. But the second I stop and think about like the second I have dead space and I'm sitting in front of my computer working on a song and I've been like 15 minutes sitting in silence thinking, that's when I start to feel like this is sort of this is like uh this is greedy this is like being very greedy with my introspection like like really giving it time like sitting here inactive for that long seems selfish sure um, yeah and i know that's like the life of a creative person but it's i will say like that's a strange it's a strange addition to the this you know myriad of guilt that i feel it's a strange addition of like well this is also the thing that supports the family but why does it kind of make me feel guilty right or indul- indulgent overly in- self-indulgent to be doing it sure sure absolutely um the you know yeah and you've mentioned this in you know kind of other interviews and stuff like that like once you you know moved out to the east coast and obviously you started to play with trios um the it seems like you always uh you know kind of enjoyed touring kind of at large um you know of course there's again highs and lows in that um but you know did you kind of take to the idea of touring um you know right away or was that something that you kind of had to learn to kind of get into the motion of that was definitely new like with my most uh active experience being in delusion and really that band at most doing the three-day weekend tour tour wasn't even like a possibility in mind that was so unaware of this the greater diy world of touring and vfws and church basements and that that whole world that i don't know how active it still is but um i would imagine not so much but um it was completely new to me and i am so grateful for the way that i grew into touring because it started as absolute shit, like the shittiest, most discouraging shit imaginable where you're just playing for the other bands or some crazy racist dude at the bar that did not know you were there to play that night. Yeah. Y'all pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and, and then you're like, I don't know if I want you to think that. Right. Or, or there was, I mean, so many stories that just blur together of, I mean, you know, it's also a really peculiar time where you're traveling around and like the thing for bands that were in the realm that we were trying to be in, like, and this was new to me too, like the fashion side of being in a scene band back then was such a strange thing to me about about dressing a certain way or about how tight your pants were or sure. or any the, of that stuff. Es- so Right, the aesthetic portion of it where it's like, okay, there is a... You know, no matter how large or small the show, like, you know, we need to keep our aesthetic, uh, you know, consistent. Oh, yeah. And I mean, 
it's just so funny. Like, it's really hard for me at this point in my life not to look back and just laugh at the things that mattered so much to this group of people, myself included. Um, but yeah, touring, touring was the kind of thing that we immediately got out and we started booking ourselves and playing around the country as much as we possibly could and, you know, funding our own uh, EP and uh, kind of just trying to get it in as many hands and to as many ears as we could. And that's when pure volume was like this great method. Pure, yeah. Pure power, volume powerhouse tastemaker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just, it, there was a, like a cookie cutter method that didn't feel like a cookie cutter method yet of making an entire group of people aware of your music. And it was, you know, I mean, there's, there's better tools now, but there's so much more music now and there's so many more people who can do it so much you know, better than I can as far as utilizing those tools. But at the time, it was fresh enough that if you as a band had even sort of a, a little interest in either HTML or, or just, I guess, tech, the internet, anything like that, there were a lot of really cool new tools and we utilized them as much as we could. I forget the one for touring. I forget which one we used for touring. But... Um, yeah, the first tour that we did was with this band Orange Island. I don't know if you oh, yeah. ever they were on Iodine yeah. Records. Why do I never, why do I remember that? That's just because that's the way that our dumb brains work. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we were with I want to say it was them and I want to say this band Lux Courageous or maybe it wasn't Lux Courageous. I think Lux Courageous was when we played with as tall as lions. Okay, um, sure. But but yeah, it, it was the first like year and a half that we toured i think the we would always do really well in new england and you would always have to like play at the beginning and the, the end of a tour just to like send yourself off with some hope and to uh mend the broken hope that you have at the end of the tour yep and so we we would we would uh just kind of do these regional things and then eventually you know we got a more i guess stereotypical kind of team going with a you know a manager booking agent label and and then it was a bit uh of i guess you know just autopilot as far as what most bands do at that point like put out a record try and tour for 18 months but i think before we got to record two i was uh i was gone so um we didn't see what the second record cycle would be like right right for sure um, the only reason I ask about the touring aspect is because, you know, it seems like you, you know, just as an outside observer and obviously not having a direct conversation with you before this, um, you know, that you are sociable and, you know, the idea of touring was something that you could step into and be that person, like not the center of attention, but be that person. Oh no, that, yeah. no, God, no. I was so afraid and I was in a band of such attractive people that, <laughs> I was I, like such attractive people, all of them wearing women's jeans. And it was just like being with guys wearing women's jeans. It's like a slap in the face when you can't find even your size in men's jeans. It's just the strangest thing. I don't, it's not an actual slap in the face. Like they're not doing anything to me. I just mean being the guy who shouldn't be wearing women's jeans in the band of men wearing women's jeans is a, is a strange perspective to have. Um, because all you're yearning for is being able to wear those women's jeans. 
Sure. And, and, <laughs> and I think, uh, I don't know, but they, it was, uh, I was never very comfortable on stage. I, I was always like really self-conscious. I, I get tremendous stage fright and anxiety before I get on stage to the point like where for some reason, my response is it just like flattens me out. I get sleepy, super, super sleepy and, and start asking everyone questions about whether or not anyone's going to like the show or if, if I'm going to be able to sing or anything like that. And I'm, I'm prone to getting sick on tour a lot better now, but it was pretty bad back in the receiving of sirens. Um, Got it. But I always wanted to, like I, I did always want to, and I, I see this sounds like, I guess hollow, but I see the benefit, not just in the sense of selling records or tickets, but I see how it's a net good experience for me and for what it is that I'm doing, even though I enjoy and find more fulfillment in making music. Um, all of my anxiety aside, like I still really do appreciate and enjoy touring. It's just, it seems to have its grasp in a few different anxiety spaces in my mind that, that it flares up. But I think everyone's got something like that. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. The, the I mean, ultimately, when you are able to uh, get up there, show your art to people who, uh, you know, uh, appreciate it, who have, you know, willingly showed up to the thing or, you know, unwillingly are watching you, you know, play in front of a band that they like, but then they actually let's hope have... unwillingly. Right. I right. hope it's just a, a group of people who don't want to be there. And then they're like, <laughs> you know, it was worth it. Yeah, that was That's, that would be great. Totally. That wasn't so bad. You're yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. That wasn't so bad. That wasn't so bad. But yeah, but having that sort of, you know, visceral feedback and that immediate uh, nature of uh, like, oh, yeah, that that's either, you know, a good thing or a bad thing. And like, because I, I think that, you know, and I'm sure you can identify with this. I think the, you know, the real tragedy when people are putting out art is that it doesn't inspire a reaction one way or the other. And that's the thing where it's just like, oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. Indifference is like, oh, it's like antimatter. Yeah. It's just... <laughs> It's the worst. It, it's it's that feeling when you show somebody a joke or or a video and you're like, you're gonna love this, and then you watch their you watch their reaction and it's it there is none. It's just that it's that sinking feeling of like, I don't know. Yeah. I guess be Man. it's it's want, wanting to be understood. Um, I guess is part of it, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. Um. You know, you're, I mean, like once you started to do, uh, you know, your own thing with the deer hunter and, you know, start to build, uh, you know, this, this band that has turned into a project that has turned into so many different iterations over the years, which is awesome because, you know, you've been able to kind of, uh, you know, follow the sort of creative forces that are, you know, in your head and try to get it out there. It's never been simple. Um, and I, I, I think that, and when I say never been simple, not a, like, not only the trajectory uh, of where you're at now, but just the, you know, the sheer notion of your ambition kind of maybe outweighing what your, you know, own personal ability is at any given juncture. You've always seen, oh like, yeah, you know, oh, yeah. right. Like, <laughs> I can tell and, you, that's exactly where I am right now okay. is, is just, it's like, I thought I was building a mountain and someone cut the bottom and flipped it on me. And now the point is just stuck down in my stomach and I'm looking at all of these things I thought I could accomplish. And I'm not, I'm not finishing any of them and I'm reaching like I'm, de I've definitely reached whatever it would be maximum velocity or something right now. 
I feel like like a hydra. It's it's a strange time. So yeah, I my ambition absolutely dwarfs my ability in any direction on any topic or any interest. It's a it's a troublesome quality right. or flaw. Well, I, I mean, but I, to you know, to not even counter that point, but just the idea that like you have this this notion and focus, and like whether or not you're able to achieve you know ten percent of it or twenty percent or whatever, you still march forward with either you know that you know naivete when you're younger or just that well like well this is still something that I want to put out there. Um, but again, it's always kind of been that, uh, that real central idea of like, you are shooting for, you know, whatever Venus, but you're landing at the moon and that still is okay. You know, and, and it, it, it just see, I don't know. There's, I guess there's no real question <laughs> looped up into this. No, but no, I, just, I would agree. I like, that's the hope though is, you know, like, I think that with like, I think it kind of somehow abstractly ties to the exhibition issue that I feel like, cause I definitely going back feel there's this, I don't know, number of, of notes per minute problem that I like, I can't get past when, when I compose. And I know this sounds totally tangential, but basically just that, um, I, I hope that what people hear is the thing that I hear when I tried to make it like, I hope that what they're listening to is what the thing I do does to my own imagination, because I'm, I have definitely never hit the mark perfectly for myself. I know that it's impossible to hit the mark perfectly in general, but for myself, even I've never like, a good example is uh, Andy Hall. When w the way that he talks about his past music to me, and the way that I talk about my past music to him, I'm very—I'm almost ashamed of everything I've made up to this point in time. Always, like it's a perpetual state where I'm really excited about the thing I'm working on, and then as soon as it's done, I'm almost ashamed of it. And I—I'm—but I talk to him, and he's so excited about the body of work that he's created he's just able to look at it so differently than I am and what I might consider flaws and what he might consider, you know, what I might call a flaw in my work. He might call, I don't, I don't know, maybe also a flaw, but it's something that has purpose. And I don't know exactly where I was going with that, but it's just, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Say something, say something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm I just kidding. I'm just kidding. I got a little off track, but I know I'll get back there. I'll draw. I'll connect the dots soon. It's okay. That's it. You, you're you're not a professional interviewer. You're a professional musician. Remember, we cleared that up. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're ter you're terrible at these things. So you know, we'll just wrap <laughs> it up here. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, and something also that's you know uh, directly kind of attached to you know your uh, project is that you know well project band whatever you want to call it is that, you know, you definitely have fallen into this, you know, what I would define as a very, uh, you know, uh, devoted and passionate fan base, you know, different than a lot of other bands, similar to what we were talking about earlier in regards to, like, your inspiring reaction. Like, people, uh, you know, for the most part, when they hear Deer, Deer Hunter, they're either super, super into it or are just like, I don't care. Like, you know, it's like, eh, whatever. And yeah, like, oh, uh, they can also dislike it strongly. Right. You know? Like, I don't, I don't think it's avant-garde in such a way that's that the average person who would dislike it would have a strong distaste for it, but it still does rub 
some people tremendously in the wrong way. Um, sure, sure. You but know, yeah. like like whether that's my voice or whether that's the the grandiosity of some of of the show tunesiest of moments. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like hey, let's calm down, but... Casey. Yeah, we get it. Okay, dude. Yeah. <laughs> sure. But you know, I think that actually connects the dots for me. Is that I think the people who would consider themselves fans of the deer hunter have that reaction that I'm talking about of, of yes, I am shooting for Venus. I, I, I can only hit the moon if I try my hardest and they though listen to it. And I think they can see the trajectory that was aimed at Venus. And I think that they listening make those connections on their own a lot. And I, I know that's too, that still is abstract to say, but I think that that's why we end up having a very strong but smaller fan base as a band is because the people that it does appeal to, it does something very specific for them. Um, and, and then for everybody else, it just doesn't hit really any marks, you know? Sure. Um, you, you honestly, it's like there is this, you know, really uh, cottage industry of what you have created. I mean, you know, you've essentially created a small business and uh, well, not created, but you've been able to build this off of the back of your creative efforts. And, it, you know, not every band can, uh, you know, obviously do that and then be able to still hold uh, a certain level of relevance in regards to not only the touring industry, but then your continued pursuit to be able to put out, you know, new music and not just be this like, you know, pure nostalgia act or whatever. Um, do you, I guess, do you kind of, you know, do you enjoy the sort of business aspect of kind of putting this all together? Or is that one of those things where you're like, the farther away I am from it, the better. I think I've always disliked it and tried to, but tried to be as involved as I can. And I think it's taken me a long time to recognize how much I was unknowingly let, letting my dislike of the topic influence the way that I handled it. So at this point, I recognize that it, the, the best it could be is the further I can get away from it. And, and so over the last year, actually, I've been sort of periodically just parsing out responsibility and, and for lack of a better word, I mean, yeah, responsibilities and privileges. I've been sort of parting them out from myself to other people in the band and, and, you know, decision-making and, and stylistic uh, input for things like merch and stuff like that, that I recognize now don't necessarily matter to me and shouldn't, shouldn't become these sort of like, you know, like a, a discussion about a t-shirt can turn into an argument in only a few steps that are very easy to fall into. If, if you are representing yourself passionately enough. Right. And I recognize that while I can have passionate, while I can have passionate perspectives on things like a t-shirt, it's not what I feel my time and my energy and my interests in art and creation are best spent. Like if I can be working with somebody I truly trust, which is like our, um, our manager, Tim and you know, the entire band, if I can step back in these things and in, in these like different facets of what this, a band is 
you know, supposed to do at this point. Cause you don't just make music. Like, I guess you never just made music, but the list is extremely long and what you can do and just call yourself a band at this point, you know, the, the number of industries you can kind of like dip into from merch to trucking are vast. Sure. Yep. Um, so I think at this point I just recognize that if I have an idea, you know, like if I have a concept for a shirt that I want someone to try or I want to want to drum up, I usually, you know, will shoot those off in a text or something like that. But anymore when stuff is brought to me, it's just like, well, do you think this looks good? Okay, cool. Yeah. Or, or, you know, like, do you guys want to be the ones who decide this or just trying to let go of more and more because I recognize how much it in it, you know, it, I guess negatively influences what it is that I'm actually interested in doing, which is the creative part. And I, I don't mean just the fun of the creative part. Like I mean, down to the nitty gritty of the creative part, because I, I am engineering and editing and writing and producing everything here. And it's a good deal of work. Um, not that, you know, I have to tell anybody, there's so many people who make all of their music, but uh, it's, it's a lot of work and it's proven to be even a little bit more complicated now with everybody kind of uh, broken off in different parts of the country, unable to get together at the moment to make a record. But um, God, I keep doing this. I talk so long that I forget what I'm talking about. It's okay. That's the welcome, welcome to podcasting, as you well know. <laughs> I think, but I, I was getting to the end of that thought. What were we talking about? Oh, we were just talking about the 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 conflict, or not the conflict, but the uh, you know the impact of uh, oh right, of course, creativity Jesus, and I business. I forgot it. My, I just I guess I just had a lapse. Yeah, I'm not saying that it can't be done. I think there's plenty of people who are just stellar geniuses at uh, at being everything, you know, but I don't think I have strong qualities in terms of like marketing or, or, or merchandise or uh, promotion or, or anything really beyond just the thing. I'm good at making the thing I want to make. And that's, I think what I've just over time realized I want to focus on because as time goes on, I realize there's just more and more things I want to make. And the more I, I consume myself with the business of making them and the less I'm consumed with the, the creative part, the more I become, I guess, sort of, you know, um, I resent the creative part because it feels like it, I, I don't know, I guess it feels too muddied by the business stuff. Sure. And if I can just focus on that and then at the, then when it's done, it's just like, here it is. And here's this idea then for, you know, I mean, I guess it's the concept behind an A&R person. It's like, I'll be the creative person. I don't know shit about promotion or, or, or publicity or anything like that. And you hold my hand like the little, you know, child brain I am and we'll figure it out together. Totally. Yeah. 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 We'll be able to, yeah, there are people, I mean, it's usually that's why you see, you know, kind of the division of labor in, you know, bands and creative outlets at large where it's just like, oh, yeah, this person is good at this thing. So they're going to lean into their strengths. This person is good at this thing. And it's like this person doesn't care about this. And so why should you try to force them into something that they just don't care about? And so, yeah, you have to, you know, you got to pick your spots. And only after, you know, like you said, you're able to find these people that you trust to enlist their help 
is when you can actually focus on the things that you know that you have, um, you know, some reasonable uh, talent at <laughs> rather than faking, yeah. like faking, yeah. like, like, you know what I'm good at? I'm good at like putting out records and selling a million copies. Okay, guys, just listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the last thing I want to hit on was, you know, something you mentioned earlier in regards to, you know, being a father, because you have two kids or do you have more than that? Am I? Uh, no, just one right now. And then one on the way uh, due in December. Ah, got a bun in the oven. Uh, well, congratulations. Yes. Um, Thank you. The uh, so, yeah, that I mean, that impacts people's lives in, you know, in the most quote unquote normal circumstances. And so, you know, you like you were mentioning earlier, you know, kind of feeling uh, selfish in certain respects about where you're spending your time and stuff like that. How, you know, uh, I guess being brought up in this sort of, you know, really independent train of thought uh, music community that, you know, we're a part of. And then also, you know, existing in the quote unquote real world as well and interacting with, you know, people I affectionately call as civilians that have never been exposed to musical subcultures. You know, how does all that kind of like, I guess, uh, marinate in your head? Is it one of those things where you, uh, you know, just kind of try to focus on the spots that you are able to, you know, be prolific and proficient at and then kind of be like, oh, well, this is my normal life versus my, you know, like artistic life or whatever. Like, how does that all kind of uh, ping pong in your head? Do you mean in in such a way as if I do, how do I compartmentalize my life? It, it, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, well, I was definitely worried about that before Rowan was born. You know, there was this like... I think it happens to anybody. I would assume it's got to happen to most people who aren't, who don't have a career that is completely ironclad, you know, who don't feel like they have tenure to some regard or in some regard in their field. There was this fear of like, okay, I guess I got to get my shit together and stop playing these little childish games as a, as a musician. Um, and I'm, I, you know, that went away very quick it was a weird little moment in my life where, I mean, my, my, my response to that within my life was probably the most over biggest overreaction because I went from this feeling of like feeling like I was just playing dress up as a musician and as a creative person and that I really had to get my shit together and figure out a way to support a child and, and provide a good, role model like i i got all those thoughts in my head of like no you have to have something more concrete and you you have to have this foundation in your life so that that can be the role model for for rowan and and he doesn't necessarily think you can just go off and be a musician um or just do something creative and then i kind of realized I was getting ahead of myself in making all of these assumptions as to the way that Rowan would react to eventually understanding what it was that I did for a living and the way that I fit into the, uh, I don't want to say Pantheon, it's not Pantheon, but just like the, the, the types of people that do this, like it's a pretty wide ranging it's an extremely wide ranging kind, you know, a uh, group of, of characters that make music in the world from, from, I guess, you know, from the birth of rock and film now pop and rock. Um, and so I, I, then I just kind of 
I got that out of my head in all of this worry, and the the number one thing that got in my mind was just wanting to discover who he was in the same way that my my or is not was but wanting to discover who Rowan is in the same way that my parents sort of let me discover myself and then they discovered who I was through that and then realizing all I really have to do is be as loving and supportive and attentive and thoughtful as I can be and those are all things that I I enjoy the feeling of Oh, you know, I, it's hard to say, like, I enjoy those things. It's no pain to me to be thoughtful or to be interested in what he's doing. So basically, that's just to say, like, there was a period of time where I was thinking of how can I compartmentalize these things about myself so that I can present the cleanest picture that does the best work for this child and leaves the least, you know, um, residue from the mistakes that I have made. And from the character flaws, I think I, I might be too blind to ever really fix. I stopped thinking so much about myself and just thought like, okay, well, he's, he's not you. You don't, have to, you don't have to instill those same worries about your own character into him and sort of lay out this foundation. You don't have to be looking. He doesn't naturally think the thing that you do you're you're not good at or you're you, you shouldn't be doing it's like that i would just be putting those fears into him the more i thought about that and the more i concerned myself with it so it just kind of flipped completely into this really vested interest in in seeing how he evolves and what he gravitates towards and you know, if he becomes interested in music, like I, there's nothing about my life that I'm ashamed of or or wouldn't want to share with him. And there's no experience that I've, you know, had that I wouldn't want to be straightforward if he ever asks me. And I don't know, it was it's it's weird. I just I have it's not weird. It's just weird given my experiences in life, but it's new. Sure. The level of transparency I feel and uh like the the level of love that I I feel for him and and the way that it makes me both more interested in my own well being and less interested in in my own well being at the same time. Um, sure, is is really interesting. Um, well, I think but that yeah, I I, I uh, stopped basically stopped compartmentalizing. Yeah, no, I, I mean it makes total sense. I think it's one of those things where you know because you have the uh, you know wherewithal and the perspective to be able to you know kind of weigh your own experience versus you know your limited child's experience. <laughs> like those are two things that you have to kind of come to uh, not only terms with but grips with. Like what you're talking about, where it's just like okay, like realistically, my job as a parent is to. Um, you know, make the child feel safe, make the child feel protected, all of these sort of, you know, basic things. But a lot of people don't even put that much thought into it. Uh, but then on top of it, just being like, well, yes, I, I want to introduce them to a bunch of stuff. I want them to, uh, you know, gravitate towards the things that they care about. And then, you know, I'm going to be that supportive person that's, you know, kind of ushering them on rather than trying to, you know, model them out of clay into right. a likeness like, of myself. I don't want to teach him the flaws. Like, I guess for a while it just felt like, okay, it, it would take me teaching him everything that I thought was wrong with myself so that he would never have to be to deal with that. I think that's a weird way of saying the whole, like, you know, I want better for you than for me, but from a more internal 
uh, perspective. Like I want you to be better than I am. Um, uh, so I think that's like a natural, I think that's a pretty natural thing where, you know, like, and that's where I don't want you to make the same mistakes I made and that kind of thing. I had that in mind for a while and I'm sure I might, you know, revert back into that. But I guess if, if I could encapsulate it, it's that it's that I'm not, I'm not so interested in stopping him from making his own mistakes within reason as much as I was, as I thought I would be before I was a father thinking about, I, I just thought I would get to the point where I was going to micromanage every little thing. And the thing I'm trying my hardest to do is to let him fall when I feel like it's okay to fall and to, to let him fuck up when I think it's okay to fuck up and not, you know, like I'm, that still sounds like I'm micromanaging. I don't think about every single fall. Right, 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 right. You kind of, you, you triage moments in real time. And it's like, I've, um, my threshold has gone down because I've realized, or it's gone up because I've realized I, I had to do like mental inventory on all of everything that I have done that is idiotic in my life. And then realize how integral those learning, those moments were and those lessons that being idiotic taught me um, firsthand better than hearing from someone else. You know, this is like, this is nothing revolutionary or anything like that. But just that finally made sense to me, the concept of allowing, like of allowing someone else to, to go through all of those things if it's, if they feel they need to. Um, which is something that my parents did for me that I now in hindsight really, really appreciate. And that has rubbed off on me and, and um, not so interested, you know, in the same way, I basically just want to do what, what they did for me for him and, and provide a really inspiring space for him to discover whatever he wants to be or whoever he wants to be. Um, and, and then nurture that as best as I can without letting my sort of knee-jerk judgmental aging side step in and think anything is you know i don't know too youthful <laughs> yeah no for for sure no uh, 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 very very eloquently put so yeah no I totally, I, <laughs> I, I, I totally understand what you're saying well uh casey i could pick your brain for another hour but like i said we'll have to start a separate podcast for that so um, <laughs> but thank you for hanging out well, dude i yeah. really appreciate it Absolutely. I appreciate it. That was Casey. And I very much appreciate him for appearing on the show. And thank you to his manager who reached out and set the whole thing up. So yes, I very much appreciate that. And next week, we have a great discussion. This is a best of 2005 chat. We are traveling back in time. Me and my good friends, Jeremy Bolm from Touche Amori and Joey Cahill from 6131 Records. We talk about our favorite records of 2005, which was a real fun chat. We had a little technical problems, but, uh, you know, I'll talk about that next week. But nothing that, uh, you know, should uh, dissuade you from listening to next week's episode. So that's what we got next week. All right. Until then, be safe, everybody.